millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. <laughs> Welcome to the Napoleonicist. Yes, I'm back, probably sooner than some of you would have liked. And no, don't worry, this isn't yet another podcast on Waterloo. There's actually been a change of schedule this month. I had been hoping to bring you two interviews. Um, right at the start of this, I made a pledge that I would do my best not to make this podcast exclusively Anglo-centric in its approach. Although some of you seem to have been happy with the results. Others, admittedly, have been less than enamoured. And I do listen to feedback. And I'm also keen that we don't just look at this period from the soldiers' perspective. You will have seen a bit of that already in the Voices from the Battlefield series, where civilian accounts were also deliberately included. So I had been hoping to bring you some interviews on the cultural impact of the conflict, both in France and in Britain. Unfortunately, I'm having a few technical difficulties, which has put those plans on hold, but fingers crossed I'll be able to get those to you next month. As a result, I'm moving up something which I've been looking to bring you later in the year, and I'm afraid you're going to be lumped with another bit of my own research. I've always been fascinated by caricatures from this period. Some of you might know the iconic, beautifully illustrated drawings by the likes of James Gilray and Thomas Rowlandson, Things like the plum pudding in danger, the valley of the shadow of death, rich, vibrant images that are crammed with witty little digs to those on all sides of the Napoleonic struggle that just yield more and more the longer and more carefully you examine them. A while back, I did a bit of research on caricatures and prints that are held in the British Museum. So today I'm going to share my thoughts with you um, on their meaning, what they show, why they matter, and perhaps more importantly, what they tell us about the wider attitudes and engagement of the British public with the Peninsular War. From the start, we obviously have a slight problem in that I can't show you these prints in an audio podcast. That's a bit of a flaw, I know, but you can find these very easily. If you Google British Museum Catalogue, you'll be able to search for the images that I'm referencing, and I'll do my best to give you some summaries of the key prints as we go along. 
So, here we go. Cartoons of conquest, caricatures and popular interest in the Peninsula War. In September 1809, an anonymous satirical print entitled Munchausen's Return with the Grand Expedition was published in London. The print is unremarkable for its withering criticism of the commander of the Vulcan expedition. In the foreground, John Bull shakes his fist at Lord Chatham, who flies over the Thames on a duck, saying, Behold the great Munchausen, the prodigy of valour safe returned, bringing with him an island hanging like a millstone around his neck. Rejoice, rejoice, my worthy master. Order the park and tower bulldogs to roar like thunder, and the general illumination to take place throughout the kingdom. John Bull's less than satisfied response is, Is that worth five millions of money? I sent you to bring me the fleet or destroy it. The blow should have been struck at once, and then the object of my grand expedition would have been accomplished. But you were playing at chess, or dreaming about it, till the opportunity was lost. Damn me! I don't like your conduct, Munchausen. You have no heart, and if you have one, it must lie in your breeches. Pretty damning stuff, then, quite literally. But it is noteworthy, or at least what is noteworthy, is the comment made by a soldier depicted in the caricature, which says, and I quote, We could have succeeded, but we wanted a Wellesley with us. This prince praise of Arthur Wellesley, which came in the wake of the failure of his Talavera campaign, is surprising, and it raises some intriguing questions about the value of satirical prints in appreciating popular attitudes to the Peninsula War. Scholarly consideration of caricatures on the Peninsula War has traditionally been subsumed within wider ranging studies of the Napoleonic era. Whilst Mary George's English political caricatures remains unsurpassed all these years on, both her work and Diana Donald's The Age of Caricature fall within that category. Recent scholarly interest in satirical prints is apparent from some illuminating research that's been done by Ignacio Paz, Richard Gaunt and Jesusa Vega. If you want to have a look at those yourself, uh, Ignacio's work came in the form of a piece for the Napoleon series entitled British Popular Opinion and the Peninsula War, 1808-1814. You can find that on the Napoleon series website. Richard Gaunt wrote a chapter in Wellington Studies Volume 4, Wellington in Petticoats, The Duke as Caricature. And then Jesusa Vega's uh, piece, well initially he wrote, he did a lecture um, for Birkbeck University which was called English Satirical Prince and the Peninsula War, The New Image of Spain. But he since turned that into a book, I believe, which is published in Spanish. So there is a language barrier there, um, but you can get in touch with him. He's a lovely bloke and I'm sure he'd be interested in discussing things with you if you have any specific questions. Going back to the, the scholarly interest though, a detailed analysis of the content of these prints wasn't available when I began this work, though the British Museum produced a beautiful volume to accompany their 2015 expedition of Napoleonic era caricatures entitled Bonaparte and the British, Prints and Propaganda in the Age of Napoleon. What I want to do is examine the representations of the Peninsula War in the British caricatures between 1808 and 1814 and the information that that reveals on how the public perceived the war. My argument is that the caricatures limited reference to the war 
were the result of business demands and the fact that the war occupied a more peripheral position in public imagination than has often been assumed. On top of that, by analysing these prints, I want to highlight the striking similarity and consistency with which many caricaturists depicted the conflict. The British Museum's extensive collection of caricatures forms the central basis of the, what I'm going to talk to you about and has been supplemented by material from within the John Johnson collection of printed ephemera and relevant editions of The Scourge and The Satirist, the leading satirical publications of the time, all of which, if you Google them, you can start to find very easily. Before establishing how the printmakers portrayed the Peninsula War, though, it's worth clearing up a few common misconceptions about caricatures and explaining a bit about the environment within which satirical prints were produced and viewed. Caricatures were not cartoons. They are not the direct equivalent of what we get nowadays in the daily newspapers. Whilst both caricatures and modern newspaper cartoons are satirical in nature, caricature artists had to forge an independent living, yet were, in theory at least, free to draw whatever they pleased. The realities of that are something that I'm going to explore a bit later, but the point is that the need to entertain came first, and the political digs had to be, in a way, secondary concerns. So representing a particular viewpoint was by no means guaranteed in the way that images that you might see in The Guardian or The Times are clearly going to be designed to advance a particular agenda. The majority of satirical prints were created in London in a process that was elaborate, time-consuming and costly. The images began life as sketches, which were then engraved onto copper sheets to enable print runs, with these plates being used to create an image that was stamped onto paper. The resulting caricatures were expensive, with hand-painted colour versions costing something like two shillings and sixpence, that's somewhere in the region of £80 in today's money. Although black and white impressions were, of course, cheaper. The London-based caricaturist James Gilray and his successor George Cruikshanks were widely recognised as the most talented printmakers of this period, although Gilray sadly lapsed into insanity from 1810. Gilray and Cruikshank were by no means the only people who had access to the market. They didn't exercise a monopoly, that's for sure. Although Johann Christian Hutner remarked in London und Paris in 1806 that, quote, it is only in Mrs. Humphrey's shop where Gilray's works are sold, that you will find people of high rank, good taste and intelligence. Some prints were produced anonymously, and although Gilray worked exclusively for caricature vendor Mrs Humphrey, caricaturists often undertook freelance work under the sponsorship of wealthy individuals. In these circumstances, print runs were small, as the work was conducted for a specific client. Satirical periodicals, such as The Satirist and The Scourge, also produced large caricatures, with Cruikshank enjoying a lengthy association with the Scourge. Freedom of speech was, at least in theory, universal in the satirical prints, with caricaturists attacking anyone or anything that they deemed worthy of satirising, irrespective of political affiliations. Although lawsuits did occasionally occur, caricatures displayed considerably less censorship and issued far more direct criticism than contemporary satirical publications. 
it is this freedom combined with the fact that market demands impinged upon the topics and the messages of these prints which makes them so valuable for ascertaining popular opinion. One advantage of analysing satirical prints is their more universal accessibility as an image in contrast to newspapers. Caricatures have traditionally been associated with the upper echelons of society, primarily due to their cost, as wages as low as six shillings a week meant that caricatures were unaffordable for the lower classes. These satires were natural collector's items, and print shops actually offered collections of prints in bound volumes to their wealthiest customers. One Welsh patron bought £137.10 worth from a single company in one go. It must also be recognised that social conventions deemed caricatures to be inappropriate for female eyes, as wit and humour were considered, in the words of contemporary John Gregory, to be, quote, a great enemy to dignity of character. These factors would appear to support Ignacio Paz's suggestion that establishing the lower classes' views of the Peninsular War is, quote, next to impossible without a time machine. However, their visual nature meant that caricatures could be used as wall decorations, a point which undermines the perception that satirical prints were only enjoyed by upper-class men. Despite their high prices, caricatures were by no means inaccessible to the lower class. Thomas Tegg began a wholesale caricature business in 1807, buying the prints in large quantities directly from the caricaturists and selling them at substantially lower prices of around one shilling each for coloured etchings. The prints could also be easily viewed at any number of public places. The preservation of a caricature wall at Cork Abbey in Derbyshire demonstrates the manner in which public venues displayed these prints, literally pasting these prints onto a wall like a huge collage of wallpaper. And there used to actually be an example in Apsley House, although that's since been taken down. Although it has, I should say, been conserved. Donald comments that caricature advertising suggests that billiard rooms were particularly targeted. Public locations, admittedly without the more working class association that people seem to attribute to uh, billiards these days, for reasons that I really don't get. But again, that example shows that caricatures were publicly visible to those who did not necessarily buy them. In the background of Gilray's Very Slippery Weather, which is a caricature print, uh, the exterior of Mrs Humphrey's caricature shop is depicted in the background, a not very subtle piece of advertising, with a crowd gazing in rapt attention at the window displaying these prints. It is noticeable that Gilray depicts individuals from all classes in that crowd, in contradiction to Hootner's comment that I mentioned earlier. Pubs and coffee houses were also establishments where prints could be viewed by the public at their leisure, and Gilray's A Barbershop in Assize Times suggests that satirical prints decorated the walls of barbershops too. The latest satires could also be perused in less savoury locations, with brothels and privies being depicted in engravings as sites that displayed these prints. This clearly demonstrates that caricatures were a form of topical recreational amusement with which anyone with an interest in current affairs could engage, and clearly did so, as part of their wider social activities. It's also important to emphasise that the audience of these prints were by no means confined to London. 
John Bowles' shop in Cornhill specifically targeted the country market, and Pasto Venderborn, a German writing in the 1780s, attested to the importance of the to the London print publishers of business in provincial British cities. In Dorchester, Dorset, admittedly not a city, a, a provincial town, for example, Lockett's advertised Prince of Hogarth's Fertile Brain, in addition to a range of other merchandise, of course. Furthermore, hawkers also carried the prints into the countryside for customers of all classes to purchase, and peep show operators also increased the accessibility of caricatures by including them within their shows. It's clear from all of this that the perception that the views of the lower classes on the Peninsula War are lost to historians is, at least to some degree, misplaced. Whilst by no means a perfect barometer of public opinion, the fact that caricatures were visual as a means of communication meant that they transcended class and could be enjoyed by the illiterate. Caricaturists therefore had to produce prints that would appeal to the widest possible audience in order to ensure that their business was lucrative, which makes the analysis of satirical prints particularly useful, but also a relatively overlooked way of ascertaining public opinion. I must admit I haven't been able to establish the number of print runs that specific caricatures enjoyed despite contacting archive departments and academics so if anyone has more information on that I'd be very keen to know more. It is clear that multiple plates were created for certain caricatures although this is partly due to the soft copper metal kind of wearing out over time it is nonetheless a testament to the considerable number of prints produced that Teg ran a successful wholesale business suggests that print runs could be quite large, although Donald highlights that the most famous prints, certainly the ones that we know about, often actually had quite short print runs. Unfortunately, Donald doesn't um, substantiate that comment, which makes it difficult to expand on her claim, and so it's therefore impossible for me at the moment to determine which prints corresponded closely with popular opinion. However, by analysing recurrent themes and the characterisation within those prints, it's still possible to establish popular contemporary attitudes with a greater degree of certainty. Although it might seem like a crude method of analysis, examining the number of references in caricatures to the Peninsula War, which is what I want to focus on here, is particularly revealing. The uprising of the Spanish population against the occupying French forces in May 1808 captured the popular imagination of British caricaturists with a corresponding plethora of prints relating to the events in the peninsula. Paz has shown the extent to which the British perceived the revolt of the Spanish population through a kind of romantic uh, ideology which Vega suggests resulted from the surprise of both the uprising and the initial Spanish success at the Battle of Balen. This interest was initially sustained, of course, by the success of Wellesley's army at Relisa and Vermeiro, and was subsequently maintained, in a way, by the anticlimax of the Convention of Sintra, although the scorn which was heaped on Sintra left a bitter aftertaste to Wellesley's campaign, which probably reflected on the, the, the later um, kind of focus on, on other topics rather than the Peninsula War. To kind of demonstrate that, 1808 saw 15 prints produced, making reference in some way to the Peninsula War, and the conflict never achieved that level of coverage again. References to it collapse amongst the surviving prints, at least, for 1809 sorry, and 1810, with just one per year, though it does pick up from 1811, with four in 1811, 
1807 in 1812, which is really the, the zenith post-1808, uh, and then another six in 1813, and three in 1814, although the 1814 references actually kind of subsume the peninsula within a, a large discussion of Britain's role within the Napoleonic Wars. It's quite clear then that the considerable satirical attention of 1808 evaporated following the Sintra inquiry, and for the next two years the Peninsula War barely featured in the satirical prints at all. That satirical attention was then revived in 1812 and 13 due to Wellington's overwhelming victories at Salamanca and Vittoria. Despite that, however, as I say, the prints in 1814 all subsumed references to the Peninsula War within caricatures making broader comments about the Sixth Coalition. Examples here are things like uh, political chess players or Boney bewildered, John Ball supporting the table, and John Ball bringing Boney's nose to the grindstone. They're all kind of emblematic of that later phenomenon, and I'll describe what they look like a little bit later. The significant decline in caricaturist references to the Peninsula War during 1809 and 10 can partially be attributed to the scandals that gripped London society during this period. A prime example of this is the scandal surrounding the Duke of York and his mistress Mary Anne Clark, in which York was forced to resign as Commander-in-Chief of the Army after Clark claimed that she had sold commissions with the Duke of York's knowledge, though she later confessed to that having been a lie. Examples such as that give a nice indication of how the focus of caricatures was primarily driven by public demand, almost a kind of gossipy narrative, and speaks volumes about the way that a scandal at home could eclipse events abroad. That was not a reflection on the Peninsula War itself, as McConnell and Heneage suggest that up to a third of the 1,000 prints that Gilroy produced over his career were personal or social satires. Similarly, when Tegg produced Caricature magazine, the first journal publishing caricatures in 1807, the resulting volumes mainly comprised of social satires, scandals, um, and to a large extent having a laugh at people's expense, were quite simply something that sold well. The lack of attention to events in the Peninsula War can also be attributed to the lack of exceptional news for much of that period, particularly following the disappointment of the Talavera campaign. In fact, for a period of almost a year between July 1809 and July 1810, there were virtually no serious confrontations between British and French forces, with admittedly a couple of exceptions. This highlights the extent to which the Peninsula War occupied a more sort of peripheral position in the interests of the public, because if interest had been high despite the lack of news, printmakers would have felt compelled to devote more prints to the subject. The fact that the war was depicted with increasing frequency in the later years of the conflict indicates that interest in the war must have been widespread, particularly given the broad range of opinion that caricaturists had to appeal to, although it is clear that this interest was closely linked to news of fresh military success in the peninsula. That the war in Spain was eclipsed by Napoleon's difficulties elsewhere in Europe serves as a useful reminder to historians of the extent to which the Peninsula War was considered to be a smaller element of a much wider conflict. This assessment contradicts some scholarly consensus and a considerable volume of primary evidence actually, as the sheer quantity of contemporary newspaper reports 
demonstrates that interest in the Peninsula War was by no means limited. Charles Esdale has convincingly argued that a number of factors, ranging from geographical proximity to the protracted nature of the struggle, ensured that events in Spain and Portugal were of considerable interest to the public. However, it's impossible to ignore the scarcity of prints commenting on the Peninsula War. In fact, some newspaper reports from the same period have a distinct error seeking to sustain public interest until the arrival of fresh news from Portugal, with the Morning Post publishing some unremarkable letters which officers had sent home to their families, commenting on things like the fact that Wellington had received um, reinforcements or had reviewed their units. One of the most surprising aspects of caricatures on the Peninsula War is the lack of criticism of the conflict. That is all the more surprising considering the caricatures produced in the aftermath of the Convention of Sintra. Prints such as Charles Williams' Extraordinary News and a Portugal's, sorry, a Portugal Catch for Three Voices and Cruikshank's Whitlock II or Another Tarnish for British Valour demonstrate that printmakers were not afraid of condemning the decisions taken or launching personal attacks on senior officers serving in the peninsula, including Wellington. In a Portugal catch for three voices, two Brits and a Portuguese man sit around a table whilst one Brit sings to the other, "'Twas you, Sir Hugh, twas Hugh, that let the French escape. That makes you look so blue, Sir Hugh." Which is a tongue twister, believe me. All of that happens whilst Sir Hugh Dorimple, who was the guy who superseded Wellington in the moment of victory at Vimero and who went on to negotiate the Convention of Sintra, sits there and turns blue in the face. Um, over being publicly shamed. Similarly, in Whitlock II, or another tarnish of British valour, three British commanders, Admiral Cotton and Generals Hugh Dalrymple and Wellesley, grovel before French commander Juno, asking him to accept the terms of the convention. Clearly then, digs at individuals, including serving members of the armed forces, were not unusual. Similarly, the Vulcran expedition was subjected to scathing criticism following its failure, not only in Munchausen's return from the Grand Expedition, which I mentioned at the start, but also in a print called A Design for a Monument, which shows a mock-up of a memorial to the Vulcran Expedition that is dripping with sarcasm, as it describes the glorious and never-to-be-forgotten expedition so ably planned and executed, and how Great Chatham, with 100,000 men to Flushing sailed, and then sailed back again. It is important to recognise, however, that the extent to which Wellington could justifiably be criticised for the conduct of the war was limited. The fact that he won every battle that he fought ensured that he was never obviously open to ridicule. The retreat from Burgos in the autumn of 1812, which Basil Liddell Hart identifies as the one time when Wellington's decisions could legitimately be criticised, came in the aftermath of the unexpected successes of the Battle of Salamanca and the propaganda coup of the liberation of Madrid, which effectively secured Wellington against future criticism. However, two anonymous amateur and pretty vulgar prints, if I'm being honest, demonstrate that the British army as an institution was still subjected to criticism. One from the period of the Siege of Badajoz, a dispatch from Major Fisher, reflects on the criminal leanings of the rank and file in stealing an officer's glasses and watch, whilst in the other, entitled The First Remarkable Adventure or Cause of Promotion Which Happened to Cornet's Tap, 
depicts an obese general examining a... how do I put this? A cavalry officer's sore posterior, shall we say, before declaring that the officer is unfit for duty and must be promoted to the, commandant, to the position of Commandant of Santarem. It is possible that the lack of criticism derives from an underlying popularity or support for the war within popular opinion. One caricature from the satirist in particular appears to support that suggestion. Samuel de Wilder's sketch for a Prime Minister of How to Purchase a Peace, published in February 1811, depicts Percival defending the Treasury with a blunderbuss, whilst Lord and Lady Holland attempt to gain entry, with Lady Holland sheltering Napoleon in her cloak and holding a piece of paper entitled Lord Wellington's Recall. Lord Holland at this time had been suggested as an alternative PM, though he might have sued for peace with France had he uh, secured office, whilst Lady Holland was known for being quite overbearing and particularly active politically. The underlying implication was that Wellington's recall would be disastrous for Britain's interests, uh, and is consistent with the admiration that the journal expressed throughout the Peninsular War of the Duke's abilities as a commander. This notion could potentially reconcile that cult following which Esdale identified with the concept that interest in the conflict was more limited in its nature. A significant proportion of the public may have considered Britain's ongoing intervention in the peninsula to be beneficial, particularly considering Wellington's ability to maintain a presence in Portugal despite considerable disadvantages. However, that didn't necessarily equate into a fever pitch interest that was generated by the novelty of scandals in London's high society, or even the Dos de Mayo uprising in Madrid in 1808. That lack of gossip-like excitement therefore meant that caricaturists would not have been inspired to create plates on the subject. It's useful to place the small number of prints relating to the Peninsular War between 1809 and 1814 within a context. The British Museum has just 59 surviving prints catalogued for the entire year of 1809, an output which George highlighted as being particularly low. Considering that towards the end of the year the Regency Bill was imminent and the likelihood of the opposition gaining office appeared high, it's unsurprising that satirical prints focused on events in England rather than those in Portugal. The statistics for 1811 are even more interesting in terms of assessing the level of public interest in the Peninsular War, as four out of the 46 political prints produced that year made reference to the conflict in some form, which equates to 8.6% of caricaturists' output. This again supports the argument that whilst public attention to events in the Peninsular War was more peripheral than has been assumed, there was still some interest in the conflict which motivated the printmakers to refer to it. The most striking theme that emerges from examining the prints themselves is an underlying patriotism that can be detected in all caricatures on the Peninsular War. The extent of this patriotism is apparent from the fact that the print Jordan and King Joe, or Off They Go, A Peep at the French Commanders at the Battle of Victoria, is remarkable for the fact that it depicts two dead British soldiers. This does not occur in any other satirical print on the Peninsula War that I have found, which itself is in stark contrast to representations of the dead and dying French soldiers, who are shown in prints being decapitated by cannon shots or being bayoneted, often in the bum, actually. Uh, bottom humour seems to have been a common theme across caricatures, regardless of their creator. 
Clearly, patriotism is the underlying motive behind such representations. The lack of dead compared to French, not the bottom humour. And this may also partially account for the lack of criticism for the war effort that I mentioned above. Heavy emphasis was also played on the way in which Britain had played a central role in enabling the events depicted to transpire, in many cases overstating Britain's involvement, which again probably isn't that surprising. One of the clearest examples of this can be found in Gilray's Spanish patriots attacking French banditti, loyal Britons lending a lift. In this depiction of a fictitious battle, a group of Spanish civilians are depicted loading a cannon with British gunpowder. That's, again, unsurprising, as the British government had pledged financial support to Spain, sending £100,000 to Spain in coin, in addition to considerable quantities of cannons and other military equipment, a fact which was itself acknowledged um, in a more overtly propagandist print by Cruikshank, entitled The Noble Spaniards or Britannia assisting the cause of freedom all over the world with a friend or foe. However, going back to Spanish patriots, it is peculiar that despite the fact that no British forces were deployed in Spain at the time of the print's publication, the solitary British figure in that print is the only one in that crowded scene who is in the physical act of killing, with other figures in the caricatures being in the act of raising their weapons or loading them. This soldier is even more remarkable for the fact that he is stepping over a decapitated French soldier, stands on a broken banner bearing the words Invincible Legion, and is killing not one but two French soldiers simultaneously with a single thrust of his bayonet. Talk about overkill. This is symptomatic of a tendency which can be identified in a number of prints, particularly those published towards the end of the Peninsular War, to overemphasise the British contribution to the struggle. In Charles Williams's Political Chess Players or Bony Bewildered, John Bull supported the table. John Bull, whose pockets are overflowing with money, is depicted supporting the globe, upon which various military leaders from the coalition are collectively beating Napoleon at chess. The subtext of this print is clearly that it is the financial support of the British government that has made Napoleon's defeat possible. Furthermore, the contribution of foreign troops in Wellesley's army and the efforts of the guerrillas received virtually no acknowledgement in the prints after 1808, with just one print on the occupation of Madrid showing the French being chased out of the city in the background by Spanish women armed with brooms. Clearly that's a dig about supposed French cowardice and a lack of fighting prowess, rather than a meaningful reference to the historical events uh, and contribution of the Spanish guerrillas. Having said all of that, my reading of Spanish patriots contradicts Ignacio Paz's judgment, which argues that the implication of the caricature is that relatively few British troops would be needed. Whilst the modest size of Wellesley's expedition supports his claim, the actions of the British soldier are more indicative, in my view, of a consistently identifiable sense of national superiority, suggesting that one British infantryman equates to two elite French soldiers and simultaneously alluding to the professionalism of British troops. A further common aspect of the caricatures is the way in which they depict French soldiers. Napoleon's men are always going to be shown in a disparaging light in British prints. That's another unsurprising uh, trend. 
and they often form the subject of a side joke that belittles them and again given the nationalistic slant that's what you would expect to see. In almost every print produced in response to Vermeero, the capture of Madrid and the Battle of Vittoria, the French are shown fleeing before an attack from a small number of British soldiers. Such a representation conforms with the sentiments of patriotism and professionalism of Wellington's own men. Yet that portrayal of the French does contradict the views expressed by memoirists of the Peninsula War, who testified to the bravery and gallantry of their opponents. Whilst those qualities would not have lent themselves to satirical wit, the consistency of the theme uh, suggests that the reality of what was happening was perhaps of little interest to the public, as it failed to conform with the popular contempt of the French that have resulted from 20 years of almost continuous conflict. In a number of prints, there is also a tacit recognition of the superior quality of the British Peninsula Army's logistics system. In the 1810 print, Hogarth's roast beef realised, for example, a number of emaciated French soldiers are shown begging their British counterparts for a cut from a slaughtered ox. This print refers to the starvation that afflicted Massena's army as a result of the scorched earth policy that Wellington adopted during the Allied Army's retreat to the lines of Doris Verdress, which and it might actually refer to a specific event which was recalled by a memoirist, although the likelihood of them knowing about that back in London is limited. Whilst William Heath, the Prince creator, sought to mock the French and indirectly praise Wellington's strategy, Muir highlights that the event depicted is not completely fictitious, as British outposts did share their rations with their French counterparts during this period. Similarly, a print entitled English Manners and French Prudence or French Dragoons Brought to a Check by a Belvoir Leap, which was based on a real event, shows an elegant British hussar escaping from three pursuing French cavalrymen due to the superior quality of his horse, which is able to leap a stream that the French horses just cannot jump. Although this is partially a comment about the quality of British thoroughbred horses, it also reflects upon Wellesley's logistics system that the British horse is sufficiently well nourished to be able to jump a stream successfully, whilst the horses of the French are just incapable of doing so. The fact that this seemingly unremarkable, albeit amusing, event was depicted by Rowlandson has interesting implications on the extent of popular interest in the Peninsula War. The fact that a print made reference to an obscure real event demonstrates that the public must have been following events in the Peninsula War, as if they hadn't done so, they wouldn't have understood the joke, the significance of the print, and it would not have sold. That therefore raises the question of whether more prints like this actually existed but have just been lost to us. If they did, then obviously it undermines the vast majority of what I've said in this podcast, that although interest in the war was widespread, it was also peripheral. So if you do have evidence of that, then please do get in touch. The way in which Wellington's physical anatomy and style of dress were depicted is also indicative of the prevalence of detailed information about the events which occurred in the Peninsula War and their protagonists. For much of the Peninsula War, drawings of Wellington were based on the imagination of the artist, bearing virtually no resemblance to reality, a fact that is visible from Whitlock II. However, from 1812, identifiable characteristics do emerge, albeit sporadically. 
British cookery or out of the frying pan into the fire in May 1811 was the first print in which Wellington's famous nose appeared, although it wasn't a consistent feature of subsequent prints. Fors failed to depict Wellington's crooked nose in 1812 in a print on the capture of Madrid. And Williams made the same mistake in 1812, but had then rectified it by 1813. However, Wellington's attire was never accurately depicted, as he always appears in a red general's uniform with his general star in those prints. And that undermines Esdell's otherwise compelling notion that the Peninsular War enjoyed a cult following, as Wellington's dress in a blue civilian coat, not a red uniform, was well known and contributed to his nickname, The Bow. So to start rounding things off, I'd argue that the relatively limited number of references to the Peninsular War in the British satirical prints was driven by market demands, as social and personal satires were considered to be much more lucrative. Whilst the public's enthusiasm for the war appears to have been fairly widespread, though of course it would have fluctuated at times, it was seemingly more peripheral than has often been assumed. Furthermore, the events referred to in the prints demonstrate that interest in the war centred on key events in many cases, such as the liberation of Madrid or the convention of Sintra. There is of course a chicken or the egg scenario going on here. Did these caricaturists set the agenda, drawing in a way that influenced public opinion through what they depicted, and then perpetuated that by providing them with a consistent way of looking at events, or was it the other way around? Did the public set the agenda, which the caricaturist then fed by drawing what the public wanted to see? As you can tell, I've come down on the side of business being paramount. These artists had to make money, and if they created something that the public didn't want to see, then that print just wasn't going to sell well enough to make it economically viable. Nationalism in prints is obviously something that will be commonplace to each nation. Arguably, of course, it is anachronistic to talk of nationalism during this period, but Linda Coley argues that nationalism was emergent during this period, and I would argue that the Napoleonic Wars plays a vital role in solidifying an embryonic version of nationalism within the country. No public is going to take overly kindly to ridiculing their own nation's soldiers. So prints in France, for example, show similar sentiments of nationalism whilst ridiculing other nations. L'Angleterre de Monte, for example, shows Britain as a grotesque Medusa-like beast with money bags for breasts, leaking coins, riding a maimed Russian bear, whilst in the background a fine example of a French soldier calmly prepares to fire his cannon. The big question then becomes about censorship. Obviously in France the press was heavily censored and the same would have been true of caricatures. In theory, there was no such censorship in Britain, and Gilroy himself emphasised that unless a caricature captured the public imagination, there was little that could be done to make it sell. In the past, though, and it's important that I'm open and transparent about this, I have overplayed that point. I used to believe that there was little, if any, censorship of British prints. The bottom line is that I was wrong. And the reason I was wrong, ironically, is Gilray. In that book which I recommended at the start... Bonaparte and the British, Prints and Propaganda in the Age of Napoleon, Tim Clayton and Sheila O'Connell showed quite conclusively, based on papers held at the British Museum, that Gilray was taking money from George Canning, the British Foreign Secretary. <clears throat> they even highlighted a draft of a caricature from 1807, which was not published by Gilray, 
potentially because it insulted Britain's potential allies, Prussia and Russia, although it may also have not been published due to Gilray's poor health at the time. Gilray's association with Canning goes back to 1796, when he and Samuel William Forez were arrested for a blasphemous print, the presentation or the wise men's offering, which commented on the birth of Princess Charlotte. So another example of censorship there, though both got off with just a warning. Clearly then, there was a degree of censorship, and crucially, as a patron of Canning, Gilray was also subject to censorship. Could an overtly propagandist print have succeeded in the public domain? Probably not, but the point is that there was direct influence from at least one politician, influencing, at the very least, the tone of what was published, though at the moment I don't have any more information on similar relationships with other caricaturists. With that, I'm going to throw it open to the forum. You're probably sick of hearing it by now, but you can join the conversation in the forum at www.thenapoleonicwars.net forward slash forum. And on Twitter, my Twitter address is at ZWhiteHistory. If you're new here, you can catch up on all previous episodes of The Napoleon Assist, including those that came before the Waterloo Remembered Saga, on almost all of the major podcast providers. And if you have any questions or comments, then get in touch. And if you feel compelled, leave a review. Obviously, I'd prefer that it was a nice one, but be honest, and if you think I'm a gibbering cretin, then say so. I will be back on the 22nd of July, that's two weeks from now, and considering that it's the anniversary of the Battle of Salamanca that day, it makes total sense for me to respond to the call for more narratives of the period by having a detailed look at the campaign, the battle, and its legacy. For those of you who attended my talk on the 1812 Peninsula War campaign for Downhill's History from Home, don't worry, I'm not going to spam you with the same material, because I want to be more detailed than I was in that overview, and particularly want to delve into the question of whether Salamanca was a wasted victory, given what followed. Until then, I'm Zach White, this has been The Napoleon Assist. Take care my friends, stay well, stay safe, socially distance as much as you possibly can to protect your loved ones, and as always, thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.